The following podcast may contain sensitive topics like depression, suicide, sexual assault, and violence. Please make sure to listen with discretion, and if you or anyone you know is experiencing these things, please contact a professional. Links will be given in the podcast description. Don't worry, I am border fine. To my podcast, Border Fine. I am excited to report that I am feeling better. COVID has not taken me prisoner. Uh, I still have a bit of a cough, but it is working its way out of my system. I may have to pause um, and restart if I get into a coughing fit, but right now everything's been pretty good. So I am excited that I'm feeling better. And let me tell you, I've gotten some feedback from the people, friends in my life who have been listening to my podcast. I really appreciate it. I think that I am actually going to have guests on here. So I plan to have um, two cousins and um, maybe potentially some professionals. I wouldn't know how to reach out to them. So... That will be uh, for an, another scheduling and process for me to work out. So, <clears throat> but today we're going to kind of dive into some ADHD and anxiety. And let me tell you, today I'm pretty border fine. I've actually had a really productive day. So, hopefully, I can get through this and not get my attention pulled away <laughs> and be able to follow my train of thought. So, kind of something that I wanted to address is that the kind of construct that I've been going with with this podcast is kind of bringing you through a timeline. And this portion may not be as thorough as a t- of a timeline because there's a lot of information to get into. And like I said, this is a recent diagnosis. So there's a lot of stuff that I'm learning about myself that is in fact a result of anxiety and ADHD. So I may skip a little bit, but I kind of just want to get into how I now realizing that I have ADHD, how it presented itself when I was younger. So the biggest thing is that being a young kid and an only child, it was kind of very easy for me to pick up things and do things on my own. So my interactions, my social interactions were limited unless I was seeking out those relationships. As a kid, I often would hyper fixate on things that I really, really found interesting or wanted to do, but I would get bored pretty easily. And a common phrase that I heard from a young age from my mother is uh, jack of all trades and master of none. I would pick up skills really easily, but I would never try to go beyond mastering them because once I got a quick grasp of it, I didn't feel challenged. I didn't push through. So that definitely translated into quite a few different attempts at sports. I tried gymnastics. I did karate. Um, Obviously I played volleyball. I don't know why that's obvious to you. To my friends, it will be obvious. Um, I am very tall. I'm 5'11". And I played the flute. I played piano. I played guitar. I really just tried to get my hand into everything because I would find an interest and I would just, I would have to try it. And for the most part, I did really well. But like I said, I never mastered a lot of those skills because I would get bored so easily. So that kind of, um, now looking back, I've realized that that is something that is kind of a, uh, Uh, theme for ADHD. 
And those immediate needs and urges to attack a specific skill, um, I would hyper fixate on. And so that was kind of something that I've pieced together and I realized could be part of that. Another big one that sometimes can be both an autistic anxiety and ADHD trait, so they're kind of a bit interchangeable with some of the symptoms, is I had a lot of sensory issues. Food textures were huge. I was pretty much from an early age a human garbage disposal. I really wasn't picky when it came to taste, except for textures. So beans and peas were a big deal for me. They're kind of still a big deal now. I don't like the graininess or yeah, that, that kind of just irks me. Um, certain fabrics were a huge problem for me. I would have, um, my family tried desperately (laughs) to make me a girly girl and put me in these frilly, ridiculous dresses and tights. And I would throw some fits because of the textures and how they would feel, especially the seams of tights on my toes, if they weren't aligned right, even some socks. That was always something that would just send me into these fits of rage or, or frustration. And that definitely can have, that, that's a symptom that can span across a couple of um, uh, disorders. But that was a, definitely a big one that clued me in, realizing that later in my life. And I would often feel very overstimulated by pretty much the number of people that I was around, uh, if there was loud music. And I could still be around those things, but I would feel that my mood would change. I'd be cranky or angry or frustrated, and I couldn't express those things, obviously, as a child. So in high school, some of those things you kind of uh, modify. You create these uh, workarounds and they call them masking. So in high school, some of those things kind of dropped off. I wasn't um, as obsessed with food textures or as overstimulated with certain sounds. Um, but things I still found in my mood were the tendency to hyperfixate. And also learning that when there's too much presented to me, I would get overwhelmed and I would procrastinate, even though that would cause anxiety for me and someone who is a perfectionist um, and perfectionism, sometimes used interchangeably with OCD, but I was a perfectionist and I would then have also OCD tendencies that would cause compulsions that would make it hard for me to progress, progress and do anything further in an assignment or in a project, schoolwork, chores, because it would, it would bother me so much. It would take me so much time. So I learned in high school to create these very specific routines in order to handle different types of stimuli. So if it was something that was related to schoolwork, I had to be in a quiet space. I couldn't multitask and watch TV um, because I could do those things, but the quality of work would be lower. And I did prefer to multitask, but I noticed that that dispersion of my attention would elevate my anxiety about getting something done in the way that I wanted it done. So it was kind of this weird give and take, um, kind of the cycle where I realized that I needed to create set boundaries for myself in order to accomplish specific tasks. And I created tasks for everything because it felt I had a better sense of accomplishment when I would take these tasks on and I would be able to check off even the the smallest of those being, you know, write the title page of my project, get chapter one done, get chapters three done, read 10 pages of this book. I mean, I really tried to create extremely detailed, even minute details and task lists because that was what would drive me. So I would fixate on those tasks. I would be able to do multiple tasks and then I would also be able to focus all of my energy into those tasks. And 
<laughs> Aside from schoolwork, there are other ways that this also impacted my life. It is a running joke with my family that whenever um, that when I had a car, everyone had to have a copy of the key. Now I had an older 94 Mazda Navajo. It looks like a Ford Explorer and I didn't have a key fob. So I had a physical key and my whole family had to have one because I think junior year, I locked myself out of my car at least eight times. (laughs) And I had my keys on a lanyard. um, And my problem with processing a lot of things at once, and if I felt rushed, and if I didn't take the time to be able to check off the items that I had with me, I would forget. So kind of like that absent-minded nature. And I often would do it in times where I would be meeting up with friends who were like excited to see me. They'd hop out of the car. They'd want to give me a hug. They're like, Jessica, come on, let's go to the movies or we're heading into the mall. And there was always this very frenzied, frantic excitement when you got to hang out with friends, especially when you get to drive your own car and you kind of have these new responsibilities and exciting moments in your life that you, especially someone like me, where you're being, where you're having all of these different stimuli and you can't focus. And that was my problem. So I would often, because I also was a person of pattern and routine, every time before I would close the door, I would press the inside lock button because I don't want my car stolen. Again, that, that hyper fixating, I was kind of paranoid. I didn't want it to happen. And I had a process where it's turn off the ignition, pull the key out. I have my key in my lanyard in my right hand. I open my door, grab my purse, grab my wallet, and then press the you know, lock button because I didn't have a key fob. Well, often the step that would be forgotten is I would turn the ignition, let go of the key, grab my purse, grab everything, lock the door, slam it shut, and keys are still in the ignition. Um, I (laughs) had this happen frequently. Um, I've had to go back to many restaurants and many movie theaters because I forgot a purse or a wallet (laughs) Um, because I didn't make those checklists. So I learned to be very cognizant and to make those steps because they were important for my process to feel complete. That is the biggest thing I'm learning too, is that ADHD is this puzzle piece put together feeling where you're trying to manage and make everything whole, but there are so many goddamn pieces (laughs) that sometimes you just mash them together and you're like, Oh, it's done. It's complete. And I have to do things singularly one at a time. And even though I think I'm fairly good at multitasking and I can in a controlled environment environment, um, it's served me uh, quite a detriment if I rely solely on that. So <laughs> I have, I coped throughout high school um, and I got through it and I got into college and into my adult life. And I have noticed I have created so many processes in order for me to function that it became exhausting on a daily basis. And that's why I ended up seeking help, you know, at 30 for these issues that I thought were just, and and I don't want to fault my family or my mother, but when I would forget something or not do something, it was attributed to being lazy and procrastination. I don't find myself a lazy person because I am always active. I do always try to have hobbies and keep myself busy. But when you forget things or don't do things, it gets the perspective from the outside viewer is that it wasn't done because you didn't want to do it or it wasn't important enough. And my brain doesn't work that way. It's not trying to 
to prioritize that information um, unless I sit down and prioritize it. So I was finding myself creating, I have a lot of sticky notes. I have whiteboards, I have a planner and I have a calendar and I created a system where things that are overarching throughout the month, those are on my whiteboard, things that I need to do right now would be sticky notes, things that are important that are being scheduled. That was a calendar. And I created all of these different platforms for me to be able to put my ideas and put my tasks and chores down. And I was spending hours on the weekend just planning for the next week because I was so afraid of missing something. And those tips and tricks are helpful, but it got to the point that it was a burden. It wasn't assisting me in my life. And I took a step back and I was like, I still think it's important that I do these things to keep a routine, but I can consolidate. And I also need to find a way to help me focus this scattered energy that I was feeling because to great example (laughs) is I would have my remote in my hand watching a show. In that show, someone would bring something up about, uh, or you would see a commercial about a cell phone plan. I'd be like, oh, I have to pay my cell phone bill. I would still remote in hand, pick up my phone, and then I would go to my bank account, and then I would go and I would pay my bill. And while on the account, I would see my shipped app, and I'd be like, oh, I haven't ordered groceries. And so then I'd be like, oh, I need to go and get my list that's in my backpack because I made a grocery list for this week. And I would go and I would pick that up and I would open up my backpack. I would get my list and then I would sit there and put all my stuff down at the counter that I had in my hand so I can start right out this list and you know prepare for the week for groceries. And then I would go back to my bedroom so I could get my purse or my wallet. And then I would see that there is a hamper full of clothes that I haven't put it away. And I was like, oh, but I'm here right now because the biggest thing is having object permanence. If it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And so you aren't thinking about things that you can't visually see. So I created this habit of doing things when I see them so I don't forget. So then I would start unloading laundry and putting it away. Finally, if you're still following along, I would sit back down and I'd be like, where's my remote? Where's my phone? And I'm just searching everywhere. And I realized it's in the kitchen on the counter because I had moved and jumped from one place to the next. And my I, I do not see the remote or my phone, so my brain doesn't go, oh, you were holding on to this the whole time while you were trying to do something else. So that was kind of my biggest issue because I felt like I was losing my mind because for most people, they can rationalize and be like, oh, I walked over to the counter. I can retrace my steps. But for me, it was panic thinking, I can't remember what I do when I go into the next room. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> so... I went to the doctor, um, we went through the symptoms and I, you know, shared a little bit of, uh, an anecdote from discussing this with my mother once I was diagnosed. So I'll just kind of reiterate it is that my mom was not very surprised when I told her because she said she tried to have me tested as a kid. And what's frustrating about that, not from her angle, I mean, she did what she could is that up until probably in the last 10 years, we have looked at a lot of disorders from a unilateral lens. And it's very much, I mean, people will even argue that it's binary because you have male and female, but it's honestly even more varied from that because everyone's experience and their upbringing and their environment affects how these symptoms can be produced. So 
boys were predominantly diagnosed in the 90s and early 2000s with ADHD because they had extreme examples and, um, and, and honestly very similar symptoms as other boys. And from a cultural standpoint, that is somewhat accurate only because the looking from the male lens, there wasn't a lot of pressure expectation for men to adjust how they act or behave. But looking from a female lens, girls were supposed to be poised and were supposed to have manners and not to get into a political, um, not even political, but, you know, even a debate of opinion. Um, if you disagree, that's okay. But there was an expectation and, and girls were viewed differently. And so to think that the symptoms that boys expressed for this disorder were the same for women was different because of the expectation that girls had, you know, when it comes to their behavior, they, we did a thing that's called masking where we were able to find coping mechanisms. We were able to adjust and to try to, not necessarily hide, but redirect those symptoms. So they started to present differently. And so when you see a boy who's jumping around on edge and can't pay attention in class, whereas a girl who does really well in school kind of talks a lot, but is able to do for the most part what she's asked to in school, it was hard for my mom to get a diagnosis for that. When in reality, girls were just not expressive in their behavior and more so mentally grappling with that um, attention deficit, with being pulled in different directions, having multiple hobbies, um, being unable to finish tasks that they start. So though we may be able to hyperfixate and concentrate and do specific things, there were ways in which we did those activities that were kind of a clue as to the you know diagnosis of ADHD. So... Now as an adult and being on medication, I have been able to still work within the boundaries that I've created for tasking, scheduling, routine, but it doesn't exhaust me and it doesn't take me as much time or as many tips and tricks to work around the disorder. So for me, medication has been able to help me stop viewing the uh, viewing tasks as needing to be done immediately or when they are in sight. I'm able to better prioritize. I'm able to pull focus from all the tasks that I have possibly for the day and then just being able to see the task that's in front of me and really try to rein in the physical pacing and wandering into different rooms because I am able to engage myself, body and mind in the tasks that I'm doing. So there isn't a detachment of my body's doing one thing and my mind's thinking another. So that has been extremely helpful uh, in my journey. And I think that for a lot of people who are experiencing this, I know there's quite a stigma right now that everyone's getting diagnosed with ADHD and it's mainly girls. And it's, well, let's think about it. All of the younger girls in the last 30 years who have not been properly diagnosed or just being diagnosed now. So it's not necessarily an influx that so many more people have it. It's more so from a statistical standpoint that we are finally able to record the existing people who have ADHD. So that's kind of been my journey with it. It's still ongoing and there may be more that I talk about throughout my podcast about how this has affected me or impacted me. I think that 
for kids, there are also going to be a lot of growing pains and behaviors that are more so learned and environmental than necessarily um, mental health related. But I don't think it hurts to be screened. And I think that's very important is screening is always the first process for anything that's going on that you think and even physically too, but mentally that's going on with you and just asking someone and presenting those things. I don't think it's viewed as being hypochondriac just because you think you have something and you go to, um, you go to a psychiatrist or psychologist to be diagnosed and then you don't have that. Um, it's a little less invasive than it is physically going through testing. So I think it's important because these are not physical ailments and we can't see them. We can't physically see what our brains look like and know what happens. And we do need the assistance of medical professionals in order to diagnose them. So I don't see a problem in reaching out and, you know, learning more about mental health and what affects you. And maybe you don't have it, but I think that reaching out to someone and, um, you know, expressing how you feel, how it's impacting your life, that's very important. So the good old same disclaimer that everything that I'm going through is somewhat unique to me. You may experience the same things. It's not a diagnosis of your own conditions. However, it can help you and lead you to a diagnosis if you feel that you're experiencing some similar things. And if you don't feel comfortable with the decision of a provider, you can always seek someone else. I think that getting second opinions is important for any aspect of your healthcare. And I hope that the opportunity to be able to discuss that with a professional can either open your eyes to other avenues that you're experiencing in your life, in your mental health awareness, and open a dialogue to discuss other things. Because I don't think anyone should be discouraged if they think they found an answer to their problems and they don't get a diagnosis that they agreed with or that they researched. But I think it should give an element of trust to be able to talk to your professional, your healthcare professional, and still continue um, to understand, to talk, to evaluate the things that you're going through that are impacting your life. So I really appreciate all of the kind words that I've heard from the people who have been listening. I hope that if there is anything that you can glean from the topics that I'm discussing is how important it is to verbalize and to vocalize how you're feeling. And if you don't have someone to talk to, then reaching out to a professional can definitely help. Maybe even a journal. Um, you can kind of separate the voice in your head from yourself as well as a person who's helping you. So writing down your thoughts and your feelings and then reading those out loud, you can kind of take a different perspective and hear how you're thinking and be able to provide better insight on your next steps. So I hope that everyone who is listening um, is kinder to themselves, learns that their mental health is important and needs to be taken care of, and has a really great rest of the week. I will update you guys if and when I plan to have guests on. Um, I will make sure to put a note in those podcast descriptions. And otherwise, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week and tune in on Thursday.